0: Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the
1: show.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Edward Greenspan, president and CEO of the Public Policy Forum. Today we're gonna chat about news media and what can be done about three things that have come together right now. The long-term decline in a business model for original news produced by journalists. The added drop-off, which is the new thing in ad revenues from COVID-19 and the fact that crisis times are when the community leans most heavily on reliable news. We all understand these challenges are not new, but they've been amplified by the COVID-19 crisis. I happened to write an op-ed last week with some ideas of what could be done about this. I don't know of any ideas that aren't flawed in one way or another, mine included. Then again, if news organizations can't afford journalists, that's not good for society either. So I've asked three people to join me today to talk about this issue. The first is going to be my co-host, my guest co-host, PPF fellow in resident Sean Spear, who was also co-author of our recently released competitiveness paper, New North Star 2, and a former economic advisor to Stephen Harper when he was Prime Minister. That is Stephen Harper who was Prime Minister. I probably didn't write that sentence very well, but Sean has not yet been Prime Minister, although it is perhaps on the cards. After our conversation, we'll be joined in the podcast by a former journalist and now Senator Paul Simons, and finally by David Scott, founder of The Logic, a digital publication that specializes in coverage of technology, companies, and issues. So Sean, why don't we get started? Thanks for joining me today. You are our first returning guest because you were on a couple of weeks ago talking about the launch of uh, New North Star, and I thought maybe we would start there with how's that going?
3: Well, uh, so far, so good, Ed. I'd be remiss if I didn't begin by thanking you and and the team at the PPF for supporting us on the release of New North Star 2. It's not all the time that a think tank releases a major report in the middle of a global pandemic, but here we are. And the report has generated a lot of attention, some good, some bad, but mostly good, particularly among those people who are thinking about how this experience is going to uh, require changes to Canada's economic policy framework. And I think that we got to paper out when we did it means that it, it has a, a real potential, I think, to inform and shape the important policy discussion on not just the immediate term transition from the status quo to something like a new normal, but longer term about how Canada is going to navigate this new world of intangible capital and geopolitics. Well, Sean, you say that
2: it's not, you know, that we released it in a pandemic. I guess one doesn't have the opportunity to make that decision very often. But of course, your your thesis and your argument is very connected up with the kinds of discussion that's going on about policy post pandemic. I, I don't want to go over the points that we talked about two weeks ago, but I do want to ask you, as a conservative, what is the discussion and debate? like among movement conservatives, not just a conservative leadership race, but much more broadly than, uh, than that, if you will, about what should come next after COVID-19?
3: It, it's so interesting, isn't it, Ed, that for the past 30 years or so, the Washington consensus, as it might be broadly described, has tended to be associated with conservatism, in, in large part because the role that political figures like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher played in cultivating a new market-oriented consensus, and as well the role of public intellectuals like Milton Friedman and others who were so integral in contributing to really a, a consensus that across the political spectrum and across jurisdictions about the role of government in the economy, the inherent benefits of trade, and, and an emphasis on as efficiency as a real primary focus of economic policymaking. So what makes it so interesting is, well, conservatives have been associated with the Washington census for so long. It seems to me that there is a nascent discussion going on within conservatism about the extent to which the Washington census overreached. That like uh, so many things, a good idea when taken to an extreme can turn out bad. And so uh, while it hasn't quite made its way to Canada, we're seeing increasingly in the United States figures like Marco Rubio, the senator for Florida, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri and others starting to talk about the role for industrial policy, the limits, what Danny Roderick calls hyperglobalization, and a recognition that going forward, government is going to have to play a greater role in shaping market outcomes. And it seems to me that as the Conservative Party of Canada goes through its leadership, it ought not to be just choosing the next titular head of the party. It ought to be going through a similar introspection and discussion about what principles, what ideas are going to mark the Conservative Party's agenda in the aftermath of this extraordinary crisis.
2: I guess everybody's an interventionist now, and and perhaps everybody was becoming an interventionist going uh, going into the crisis already. It was striking to me in the last election campaign in Canada that almost all the policies put forward were policies about redistribution in one way or another. They weren't really what you've set out to do here, which is more growth-oriented, competitiveness-oriented policies. The debate really has been much more about you know
3: dividing up the pie as it exists, hasn't it? I think it's such a critical point, Ed. I'm glad you made it that there's a there's there's a distinction here between between revisiting some of the inherent assumptions of of what you might call neoliberalism, and an emphasis on growth and and productivity. That is to say that the opposite of neoliberalism isn't necessarily socialism or redistributionism. It is a more focused and intentional agenda around economic growth and around cultivating sectors and technologies and firms here in Canada that can drive productivity and, and participate in global supply chains. I would just say that the emphasis on growth, as you say, seems to have dissipated in recent years I would predict will become even more important going forward. You know not only are we going to have to dig ourselves out of the deficits and debt that we've accumulated during this extraordinary period, we still have the fiscal consequences of aging demographics approaching us and the the difference between two percent economic growth and three percent economic growth will really mean the difference between fiscal sustainability for our government and broad-based economic opportunity for our population. So the extent to which the paper contributes to a a renewed focus on economic growth, seems to me that would be a good outcome. Let me ask you a question because you are a polymath. You're someone who has a a wide range of interests. You've mentioned how the current crisis we're living through is going to cause a reconceptualization of the role of government in the economy, which, of course, I agree with. But I saw recently post-secondary expert Alex Usher say that he's never seen the Overton window larger before. And I I think that's broadly correct. What other areas do you think we're going to see a change in the way that we think about issues, a change in, in the kind of goalposts of political debate in our country? What ideas were previously outside the mainstream but may find themselves within the mainstream given the experience we're going through?
2: I'll give you a brief answer or a brief thought because uh, I have no uh, you know inside knowledge there is no inside knowledge, but i 'm going to use the Overton window reference that you made to segue as well uh, to the conversation about the future of media and the future of news, which indeed may be one of the remaining bastions where liberalism the state staying away from that uh, particular pursuit is uh, is is most acutely. In contention, I suppose, because nobody wants a state to be running the news in a democracy. That's nobody's uh, goal. But, you know, I think we're seeing a whole bunch of issues that are in play, that are changing the trajectory of previous issues, new issues, new issues like supply chain security. Clearly not something we've uh, debated before. We have debated before. What a gig economy would look like, and whether gig workers would be, be were adequately protected. I think that's on a whole new trajectory as we move forward. I think there's a sense of shame in a lot of places about what's happened with workers in uh, in nursing homes and 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 residents of nursing homes, and, and there's a, a whole set of issues. Whether our healthcare system has really been up to it, whether our income security systems have been up to it. I think there'll also be a big discussion about what governments learned because government has uh, managed to. Act very quickly uh, to respond to to some situations. Imperfectly, of course, you can never act perfectly, but particularly when you're when you're going uh, at full tilt, I think there'll be lessons, okay, what have we learned about this? And should it really take us 10, 20 years to debate issues in this country before we uh, get to a resolution? You did mention the Overton Window, which is a concept that is, uh, I think, a little bit obscure to some people. And, you know, as you know, Sean, it's a concept by what are the frames and limits of, of what one would call acceptable debate, debate that makes it into mainstream. And there were gatekeepers around the window, essentially. And I was once a gatekeeper as an editor, deciding, okay, this is news and this isn't news. And this is something that people should have and not have. And one of the good things about the new world, the new digital world, is that there's far greater access. There's fewer gatekeepers and more people who can get through that window and put their ideas forward. The downside of that is many of those ideas tend to be hateful or they tend or, or people resort to disinformation. They're not really ideas. They are attempts to confuse people and confound people and to divide them. So I think that's one of the debates at the core of this. And it leads particularly in an infodemic, as uh, some people call the pandemic on the information side. I think the WHO initially said there's also an infodemic. There's a lot of false news going on. Uh, People are burning down 5G towers in some countries because (laughs) uh, that's the cause of of COVID-19 somehow or another. So... Does that put a greater impetus to try to support the ecosystem of news that, co- that you know, produces original news from reporters who work in a verifiable uh, manner? You know, again, as a conservative, uh, but you're describing conservative in, in, in a new framework, is this something that, uh, that makes you highly suspicious, highly
3: skeptical? Well, a- as you know, the, the Conservative Party of Canada has resisted parts of the Trudeau government's plan to support the sector. But I mentioned earlier, Ed, that American conservatives are really grappling with some of these big fundamental questions in a way that we haven't seen quite yet imported to Canada. And a really good example is the question of the digital platforms and their relationship to the media companies. As you know, and as you outlined in your op ed that ran in a number of papers across the country, Australia, mm-hmm. France, and others are starting to think about whether digital platforms like Google and Facebook ought to be compensating news organizations for relying on their journalists to go. And what's fascinating to me, Ed, is that a bill before the American Congress that would, broadly speaking, permit American publishers to come together and negotiate collectively with the major digital platforms, has support from Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, and Rand Paul, a libertarian firebrand in, in the U.S. Senate, to say nothing of the fact that Josh Hawley, who I mentioned earlier, has really been at the forefront of asking big questions about uh, these global tech giants. So it seems to me, as you said earlier, some of these trends were already starting to express themselves prior to the crisis, but I think they'll be hastened and accelerated after the crisis. And it, it seems to me it behooves people of good faith across the spectrum to be grappling with them. And, and I hope that doesn't exclude the Conservative Party of Canada, in particular, and Canadian Conservatives in general.
2: Well, I'm going to open up the uh, the conversation to our guests in one second. I just uh, I'll just make the observation on what you said, uh, Sean. That sometimes I think that there's. You know, two separate strands that are wrapped around one another like a double helix in uh, in biology. And one strand is the uh, deterioration of the news system as we know it, and the financing for news gathering, for original news gathering. And the other, of course, is uh, the question of uh, of disinformation and hate that are polluting the system and that and that move around in in a digital world, uh, mostly, not exclusively, but uh, but mostly. And I, I think that policymakers are probably getting a little bit more comfortable with the second one. But the first one is still, although we do have had policy cannon we'll talk about this uh, in one moment with our guests, but I think that there is a great discomfort level. I think nobody wants to see the state too close to news gathering and, and that's a problem. So let's open the floor. I invite in uh, Senator uh, Paula Simons, worked for many years as a journalist and as a columnist for the Edmonton Journal in Alberta. She now sits as an independent senator representing Alberta in the Senate of Canada, and uh, she's part of the independent senators group. We'll open up in a moment to our our second guest, uh, David Skock, who is the founder of The Logic, which I mentioned is a technology publication, a digital technology publication. David was before that Associate Editor and Head of Editorial Strategy at the Toronto Star. And before that, he served as the Managing Editor and Vice President of Digital for the Boston Globe, where he led the organization's digital transformation. And he was also uh, the co-creator and director of Digital Global News. So he's got a lot of uh, experience, as does does Paul Simon. So welcome to both of you. Paul, let me uh, start with you for, for a moment you've been in the news business many years. You're now in the Senate of Canada, and I suppose in the uh, policy and political business. How comfortable are you with both what's happening with news and what the possibilities are of what might be done about it?
0: Well, when you say how comfortable am I with what's happening with news, if you mean the death spiral of mainstream media, I'm very uncomfortable with that. I mean, but this is I mean, COVID has obviously exacerbated and exposed weaknesses that people like those of us who've been in the business for a long time have known about for 20 years. I mean, I I was a working journalist for 30 years with the CBC, with Post Media, and the news ecosystem has changed so dramatically over the span of my career. It's an almost unrecognizable paradigm now. And so The problem with that, as everybody knows, is that we have far fewer reporters who are simultaneously being asked to feed a digital news cycle 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with fewer resources than they've ever had. We are, as a result, uh, in a situation where people have a disrespect and a distrust of mainstream media, which is egged on by political and cultural forces, some of them well beyond Canada. So at the same time that you have people casting aspersions on the accuracy of media you have reporters who are working flat out trying their best not to become self fulfilling prophecies of that same distrust so it is a crisis that didn't begin with the collapse of advertising revenue from from things like classified ads but you know we are i feel like we're nearing the end of days and it horrifies me not just because i have many friends and people I deeply love who are still committed to the practice of journalism because I think it's devastating for democracy and for public discourse if people don't have a place where they can reliably and routinely get accurate information about their communities. So Paula, what, what, what would you do about that? I mean
2: the government of Canada came forward with a program in the 2019 budget which uh, still has not been fully effected. I don't think any money of the 595 million dollars in that program has gone out yet. And I think you've described it, you know, already as a failed model, and and said that you're allergic to, uh, to some of the ideas in it. So tell us about about that.
0: Well, you know, having been a working journalist, as I say, for 30 years, working journalist, it makes me sound like I was some kind of Clydesdale horse. But journalists, it's antithetical to them. It's in it's in the it's in the DNA of the beast not to want to take government handouts because it is journalist's job to hold the government to account. So anytime you find yourself in a situation where they're the patron and you're the supplicant, it's a very difficult power balance because you know deep in your bone marrow that it's difficult to hold people to account if they're paying for your salary. So that's one problem. But I think the other problem is the way that the system has been rolled out because, as I understand it, there are about 168 positions that have been funded, even if the funding hasn't, hasn't flowed yet. So I was quite surprised when I, when I went through them to see that of 168, five of those funded positions are with the Toronto Star. Now, this is supposed to be a program that is to support struggling media organizations in communities that are underserved. So, it's great to see funding going to little newspapers in in little towns in Alberta, but I say to myself, is Metro Toronto underserved? Is the Toronto Star a paper that should have five of these funded positions? And it seems to me that uh, Neiman Labs did a really good piece that I read on the weekend. Uh, in which they quoted one of the people who is in charge of handing out the money, saying they didn't want to give the money to startups because they would create more competition for newspapers. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't have a program whose primary function is to subsidize giant legacy media corporations at the expense of small upstarts and, and digital platforms that are probably the future of our craft. I'm not interested in a program that funds buggy manufacturers, Let's clarify
2: one point here, and then we're going to go to a startup in a second. And he can say what he thinks about that. But the government's confused people with the number of programs that they've, they've launched. The program you're referring to is a local news program. A local uh, the, journalism
0: uh,
2: initiative, yeah. Yeah, to, to hire local news. And then there's other pieces, a labor tax credit, allowing uh, journalism to become a philanthropy, and a uh, subscription tax credit. So there's, there's essentially four pieces, uh, if you will, of this and i'd say as the author of of a major report that has influenced some of these decisions along the way it was certainly never our intention that this would be a bailout for the newspaper industry our opening position was that democracy is imperiled by not having good flows of information and then therefore we need journalists and we need digital innovation but it should be open. Whoever's producing original news should be able to have access to any funds that might be there as well. And government funds wouldn't have been our number one preference. Having said that, David Scott has uh, been extraordinarily entrepreneurial over these last several years in launching a new publication in Canada. I might say that it's very gratifying to see that a new publication is doing well on the basis of, I'm sure, business acumen, but also very good journalism and very good original journalism. So, David, I I know you have views on whether this is a good program, a bad program, how it could be a better program, or perhaps, uh, in theory, it just can't ever be good. And I just wonder if you'd weigh in on that.
1: Thank you, Ed. Well, I think there are a lot of balls up in the air right now, and and try to compartmentalize all of them to to come up with a a sound framing is is important. And the first ball, I would say, is COVID-19. And I think any business, as we're seeing with the government wage subsidies and other initiatives that are coming out there, any business that is having to navigate through this crisis where their revenues have dropped dramatically and is getting government support, should be getting that government support. And I certainly don't see why publishers should be exempt from that policy. Uh, There should be no special treatment exempting them from that. They are as affected as everybody else. Uh, When we start to think about journalism subsidies on a more broader lens, you you mentioned your report, Ed, and and I think my my main concern at the time, and it hasn't changed, and I was almost surprised over the weekend to hear or read some of the, the shock that people were feeling about it, is that the framing of the policy was always about supporting an industry, not creating or or building new innovations. And that's an understandable policy uh, approach and a policy tool to use. I just always felt and and to this day feel like it, it wasn't the right approach exclusively. And where we got into trouble is the policy was so prescriptive towards saving an industry that it became or has become a mutually exclusive arrangement where it's either support the newspapers that are dying or support the innovators that are rising, but we can't do both. My challenge has always been, well, why can't we do both? Uh, Why does this have to be so mutually exclusive? Uh, The other thing I would say is the next question in all of this and the thing that seems to be the hot button issue today is the taxing of tech giants and having those funds flow to the news organizations. I think they're separate topics. If you want to tax the tech giants, figure that out. That is certainly a policy approach that you should be looking at as you consider anti-competitive behaviors, as you consider data and IP and how to have Canadian firms competing in their world. That is certainly something that should be approached and viewed through its own lenses and heritage in ICID, in finance and anywhere else. But the journalism question feels to me a bit removed from the taxing of tech giants question. If you wanna use can, can, government funding to support journalism, go for it. If you wanna use government funds or government approach to tech giants, go for it. But the two positions seem to me are linked in a way that I'm not convinced they need to be.
3: David, you've thought about these issues deeply. I, I know because I've, I've benefited from your, your insights. One of the things that people who've not spent a lot of time inside newsrooms or thinking about the, the business model may not fully comprehend is the extent to which the challenges we're we're seeing in the sector are a function of a business model that requires modernization and a set of forces outside the control of publishers and the sector. Can you maybe just paint a picture? Because there are so many, as you say, there's so many balls in the air. There are so many challenges and issues facing the industry. It's hard to disaggregate. What's really going on here? And so to what extent is this a function of shrinking of uh, ad revenues um, because of the dominant companies like Google and Facebook
1: versus, versus other factors? Well, there's no question that Google and Facebook have swallowed up the advertising revenues. The way I've always tried to look at it, and when I was in a position, positions that I've been in over two decades of being in journalism in traditional newsrooms, I looked often at the cost structure. Because that's, I think, where you really see the disruption. You know, the logic, uh, we started with $300,000 of funding, and we're able to make that stretch because our cost structure was so low. The revenue challenges are real, but businesses should, in my view, be able to navigate the revenue challenges on their own. That's part of running a business. And as a CEO, that's, that's my job. It's when the cost structure changes on you that I think you need to, um, you need to be disciplined.
0: You know, I think what people outside the media industry maybe don't understand is the catastrophic extent to which traditional revenue streams just dried up. In all the years I worked at the newspaper, I think like a lot of reporters, I was kind of condescending about the people who sold the classified ads because the classified ads were dull and boring. And I hadn't realized that they weren't just a revenue stream. They were a revenue torrent. And when the classified ad revenue dried up, it was cataclysmic. I mean, that's before you worry about the big national display ads and and the kind of glossy ads that people think about. It was those little mom and pop ads that were the backbone and the lifeblood of daily newspapers like the Edmonton Journal, the Calgary Herald, the Winnipeg Free Press. And when that advertising revenue disappeared, and that was even before Google and Facebook stomped in, I mean, that was sites like Kijiji that ate that up. Uh, And 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 that's that's the beginning of the collapse. And then there was the pursuit mad uh, legacy media companies had of digital advertising. They couldn't compete in those platforms either. And then, of course, they made this deal with the devil. I signed up with Facebook and Twitter because we believed that if we got clicks and that we would, you know, pimp ourselves out to those aggregators, that somehow that would be our salvation. Notice I still say we, it's only 18 months since I've been out of a newsroom. Mm -hmm. And so every time people tried, you know, when a door shut, people would open a window and and then then the window would blow shut again. It came like a game of whack-a-mole to try and figure out where the next revenue source would come from. And we all know how many Canadian news organizations invested bananas amounts of money in believing that iPads would save. And they all did this, and with the exception of La Presse, which is sort of, kind of, tiny bit made it work. That turned out to be another huge strategic error. So you can only cut costs so far. I used to liken it to being on a life raft and you're cold and you're freezing on the life raft. So you cut off some logs and you burn them for a fire and maybe someone will come and rescue you. If they, But eventually you will have used up all the logs. And when there are five people left in a newsroom that used to have 50, there's a finite amount of news content that you can put out that people want to read. John, you were going to
3: uh, you're going to weigh in as well. Well, let, let me take up that Senator Simon's last point, and it, it, which builds on something uh, David said. And I'll put it to all three of you. I've been trying to grapple with this question dispassionately as an outsider. Is this a market failure, or is this, a, or is this just a case of an industry that has failed to innovate and ought to be destroyed through the ex- through the process of creative destruction? And working through that question is is real challenge for me. David said that revenues are being adjusted because of a whole host of forces, and that ultimately the answer lies in uh, changing the cost structure. Senator Simon says that there are limits on that, and ultimately it'll be borne out in less information in the public domain, which can have implications for our democracy. So to what extent can this be solved for new cost structures or are there limits? And is this a genuine case of market failure, which if you go back to public policy 101 says that there is a need for some kind of intervention, not a dumb intervention, obviously a well-designed one, but an intervention nonetheless.
1: I think we're past the point, at least I am, of deciding whether there should be an intervention or not. I, I think we can all accept that an intervention is, is happening in some form or another. And, it's, and then it's a question of, well, what's the best way to intervene? I don't have any objections with that. I believe deeply in the role of journalism. I've devoted my life to it, and I'm committed to the idea that that we need to support it. I I guess when it comes to just looking at newsrooms over the past 20 years and some of the decisions to get to the senator's remarks, the first things that we cut in newsrooms back when things did start to go south were the mid-level editors, people who had the wisdom and the institutional knowledge to train a new generation of reporters. And I think that in cutting that mid layer and we also outsourced copy editing and other elements that really gave you quality in doing that we hurt our own respect and trust and value with our communities which then made it harder to convince our communities to reinvest in us and place that faith in us so that was a, to me a cardinal sin and the other thing was the church and state notion of newsrooms which i believe deeply in what it really is about is protecting the editorial uh, decision making process from being impacted from advertising and revenue challenges but somehow we as an industry kind of made it a a blanket statement for everything and the people on the other side of that wall were left to their own devices in dis- in making revenue decisions or product decisions and strategy decisions from the reporters and i think that was a terrible mistake one of the things that i think we're trying to do the right way is i believe that the best way to create a successful journalism enterprise in 2020 is by aligning your product strategy, your business strategy, and your editorial strategy. And what I mean by that is you could put up a paywall today and say, okay, pay for this product. But if the editorial strategy of that product is still aligned around clickbait and page views, you're not going to generate a single dollar of revenue. And so all of this, Sean, is a long-winded way of saying, I think we have to take some responsibility for the actions that we took over 20 years and not just look at tech platforms and government to solve our challenges.
0: Yeah, it comes with corporate concentration too. And this is, this is another great challenge. The government in its wisdom allowed the merger of Post Media and The Sun, which meant that in communities like Edmonton and Ottawa and Winnipeg, in, in, in Calgary, you lost those competitive voices. So you have one newspaper put out under two mastheads with the same content. And at the same time, you saw a consolidation of control in central, in central cities, which meant that the newspapers were no longer responsive to the issues in their community. And the editorial positions of the newspapers no longer aligned with the positions of their communities. And so you get a greater and greater alienation from the readership because they look at the newspaper and they say, what about this newspaper is local? Where are the local writers? Where are the local editorial positions? So if everything is centralized and everything is homogenized, there's no reason for people to, their local newspaper is serving their local community interests. And I understand why we allowed that consolidation to happen, because the premise was that if you consolidated the assets, maybe you'd be able to compete against the Googles and the Facebooks. But instead, as, as David very correctly says, you devalue and debase your own currency. I think we
2: have to imagine that not every decision was, uh, was completely wrongheaded in its time and that, as I, say, as I say, Paula, consolidating might have made sense as you're trying to uh, control your costs in a, in a world in which revenues um, keep declining. Not good for the product being responsive to its readers. Certainly not good. And I imagine when we see a rebirth And a rebirth will come from smaller startup organizations, from uh, innovators that David has talked about, probably. And that uh, rebirth, I think, will be more community-based, more diverse in its ownership kinds of structures, including nonprofits, including uh, community foundations, perhaps. Some profits that will be niche profits. I mean, it will be a much more diverse kind of system that, that will arise. The question is, will it have enough reporting power? Will it be able to support enough original news generation? And that to me remains the open question. I agree with David that it's certainly a false choice to say we're gonna support uh, the incumbents and not the innovators or the innovators and not the incumbent. Point here is to support journalism that supports uh, democracy. That's the point that supports a democratic discourse and stay out of the way of business models and platform models let the people who are actually doing the news do that. But without sources of funds that aren't coming, to Sean's point, from the market, You know, there's only two sources of funds I can uh, see that don't come from the marketplace and I don't see adequate funds coming from the marketplace. And those two sources would be government, the public purse. And I think there is a public interest. It's just a great complication in this world because of, of the need to separate state and press. And the other source of funds would be the distributors, for which we have a precedent in Canada where cable and satellite paid 5% of their revenues every year that went to producers of content. Beyond those two, maybe some benevolent billionaires, but I think we're running out of those. And, and, and not every billionaire is benevolent, unfortunately. I just don't see a way that we can continue to finance news in a manner we need it. Uh, so I, I throw that red meat at you, David.
1: Well, we always have this conversation and forget about uh, the CBC and the CBC has itself made it clear that it is more than a broadcaster and we don't need to have that debate about whether it should be or not, but certainly as a player right now in, in, in the space, the CBC has traditionally been on a competitive level with its peers. And in fact, the CBC could be a great amplifier of a lot of the quality work that is happening in places that don't have an audience. Biggest challenge that any small startup has when you go out and try to raise money like I have is, well, it sounds like you have the experience and you have a great idea and you have a great team, but if nobody's gonna read it, why would I wanna be a part of it? And that simple act of even just amplifying the work and not taking credit for it and not taking ad revenue from it, but actually just linking to us, I can't tell you how important and valuable that would be if the public broadcaster would take that step. The other thing I would say is we don't talk about government from the traditional, you know, I I cover innovation and technology and one of the big arc plugs for growth for startups is government procurement and the government, conversation seems to be always about how can we subsidize journalism not how can we pay for what we're already using and every government department in every province has briefing notes for their for their members and you know research papers and there is no reason i see why government cannot procure the journalism that it finds of value for mm-hmm. its readership as well
0: ooh i that 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 makes me very itchy My beloved former newspaper has already got itself into some hot water with that kind of logic. I I guess what I would say is I'm speaking to you not just as a senator and a member of the Transportation and Communications Committee, past and probably future. I'm not speaking to you just as a former journalist. I'm speaking to you from somebody who is not in Toronto. I mean, David, what you're doing is fascinating, but it is a niche publication for a niche market. Toronto has the Star and the Globe and the Post. It is well in the Sun. It is well served with local journalism. The problem is in cities like Victoria and Winnipeg and Halifax and Fredericton and Edmonton, where if there is no strong local newspaper and no strong local television, there is no other way to get the news. And what we need to find isn't just a way to support a niche, pub, a niche digital publication or a big cosmopolitan uh, paper in a giant city, but how do you support the nuts and bolts basic journalism that people need to know, who do I vote for for city council? Who do I vote for for school trustee? How do I know whether my municipality is spending money wisely on flood abatement or bridge construction? That's the kind of not very glorious, not very glamorous journalism that we need more of in this country. I mean, I I had the privilege uh, this year of serving on the jury for the National Newspaper Awards for their their sort of their award of awards to the best journalism in the country. And our jury, I'm, I'm allowed to say this, we unanimously agreed that the most extraordinary work we saw this year came from the London Free Press, which is not a big paper, but was doing the kind of absolutely essential public interest journalism that a community the size of London, Ontario needed. How do we support those newspapers?
2: I would just add as as an alumni of the Lloydminster Times newsroom, that the next year down, you know, when I was in Lloydminster, we had, I worked for a daily newspaper in Lloydminster, and we competed against a uh, two or three times weekly newspaper, And there was a local television and radio station. So there were three newsrooms operating in that town then of 15,000 people. Now it's a town of 35,000 people. And there's, I believe, one, two or three times a week uh, uh, publication left. And I think it might have, uh, under the COVID situation, which has just been, you know, an extraordinary added blow on everything else, uh, advertising in many newsrooms is down, in in many uh, news organizations is down to 50% or more.
0: Because the collapse of the oil industry has hit Lloyd Minster like a tsunami. I mean, right. that's the other thing. I speak to you as an Albertan, and I, I can't begin to describe to you the, the the double cataclysm that Alberta is suffering, not just from COVID, but from the complete, uh, negative number oil price, which has been so destructive to communities in northern Alberta, especially.
2: Let me put you each on the spot as we get close to wrapping up here. Do you support... In theory, the government helping out an industry, particularly in this COVID uh, scare, and I mean particularly the industry, not you know, David's opening point that it should qualify for the wage subsidies and uh, and programs like that. Uh, the $595 million program. you know, Can it be fixed in a way that would be acceptable to you? And is it right? And do you believe that there should be some measures as Australia and France have begun to do what that would impel or compel the platforms to be paying for some of the uh news that they're using so i will start with you sean and then go to you david and i will wrap up with you senator
3: Uh, i'll I'll be brief because uh, david and and senator simons are the real experts on these questions but but what i would say is uh, in principle i'm 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 open to some sort of uh model for support but I, i think David's observations about who's in and who's out and what strings are attached to public uh, public support are obviously critical questions. On the latter point, I, I'm intrigued by this question of the relationship between the digital platforms and Canada's uh, journalistic organizations. Senator Simon said that she sits on the Senate Transportation and Communications Committee, which amongst other things is responsible for overseeing Canada's railways. We have governments very active in the area of regulating prices, regulating commercial activities. It comes to railways because we recognize that our two major railroad companies have monopolies. My wife was deeply involved in these issues when she worked in the prime minister's office, and we had a serious grain issue during the, the Harper administration. And so it seems to me there's some analogy there between the way we treat the railways and the way we ought to think about these digital platforms. And their relationship and market power with uh, Canada's uh, news organizations.
1: All right, David. I come back to my original point, which is that it's all about framing. And I am a romantic about newspapers. My favorite job was when I had a news printing press underneath my office and it would shake every night. <laughs> I get it. But I do think that we should be mindful of looking at things on a time continuum. And yes, in this moment, it looks like. The traditional publishers are in dire straits and that the new entrants aren't able to make up for the difference. But one man's niche publication today could be another man's William Randolph Hearst empire tomorrow. And what we need to do is make sure that we remove the barriers and don't tilt the playing field in a way that impedes that progress. And the London Free Press is valuable because of its quality of its work. And I would hope that the community of London who believes in that paper will step up as well. So two things there. One is we need to let some of this play out a little bit and let the new entrants have the freedom to roll the ball downhill a little bit and build up some momentum while also saving the jobs. The second thing is with regards to the tech platforms, you know, as I said, I think that is a a much more complicated and larger conversation around uh, to Sean's point, anti-competitive or competitive behavior, and the regulations around that, as well as the data trust and IP that come with that and privacy issues and and then the journalism piece. But I don't I would be very leery of any policy approach that is uh, trying to solve one of those problems without looking at the entire three legs of that stool.
2: Okay. Yeah, well, that much before we go to Paul. that much larger question we will have to come back to at another point on your William Randolph uh, Hearst ascension, the business ladder here. So, Senator Simons, what do you think? I'm putting two choices before you. They're not mutually exclusive. It's public money to help, to help the news industry, not the newspaper industry, but the news industry. And measures also that would somehow balance the playing field between the platforms and, uh, and other news uh, operators.
0: I mean, the problems are twofold. It's one thing to have a philosophical position. It's another thing to put it into practice. And we can see with the journalism bailouts that this is already a problem because who decides who's a reputable journalist? Who decides who gets the money? Who decides where there's a news desk or not? And so already you can see the structural inequities that were rewarding giant legacy operations and penalizing small upstarts, that we're deciding that some committee of experts should be in charge of deciding who's a journalist and who isn't, which leads us into very tricky territory. So, I mean, if there were a way that you could make this agnostic, if you could somehow, with the wisdom of Solomon, decide who deserved the money, very difficult to do that in practice. As far as regulating giant media conglomerates that exist outside of Canada, that's a tricky question too. Yes, in a perfect world, we would take money from, you know, from Google and Facebook and give it to noble Canadian news organizations. Making that happen in real life is much more difficult. I mean, I was frustrated that this government package never got to have a discussion about it in the Senate. I certainly hope that in the next phase we get a chance for some sober second thought but the goal surely isn't just to provide newspaper jobs the goal is to provide canadians with thoughtful dispassionate reliable information about what's happening in their communities, so that they can make good decisions about the futures of those communities if i had a mechanism to do that I would already be the editor in chief and the publisher of every Canadian newspaper. There is no magic answer. We've we've been looking for it for for 25 years now.
2: I see at heart your Consolidator. So uh, that's very good. Uh, I would make two observations of what you what you've all said. You know, the first is that I don't know if we need the wisdom of Solomon. I think we need wisdom and determination. Canada has pursued policy around media for many years because we sit next to the united states and because we're trying to maintain a canadian identity and coverage of canadian polity and plus we have a cbc that is a product of policy and we have a cable levy that gave uh that moved money from uh from distributors to producers we have section 19 of the income tax act which gives preferences uh to Canadian uh, to Canadian publications for advertising purposes. We have a Canadian Periodical Fund. We do have policy. You raise, you know, though, a very difficult question, thorny question around the choice, who's in and who's out. I've got to say that journalists weren't as bothered by the choice of who was in and who was out in defining journalists when they wanted a shield law in 2017. Not everybody would be able to protect their sources. Only a defined group of journalists would get that. And I think that clearly it has to be, if, if it is going to exist at arm's length from government, it has to in some way be independent, but I don't think that's uh, impossible. And I don't think that will ever be easy.
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't have a college. I mean, this is what a lot of people outside the media don't understand. We don't have a college of journalism. There is no accreditation you need to have to be a journalist. There is no degree, there is no license. I mean, anybody who decides to call themselves a journalist self-defines as a journalist but but not anybody who calls himself a
2: journalist gets shield protection
0: yeah but not but i don't want to live in a world in which the government regulates who's a journalist but at the same time i mean we already live in a world where reliable truth-telling journalists are constantly competing against i won't use the word fake news because it's been co-opted by somebody else but it's very difficult in a social media ocean of content coming at people, to differentiate what is real from from what is mischievous.
2: Agreed. And and by the way, who defines a journalist under the laws that exist now would ultimately be the courts, uh, not uh, not the government. You know, under certainly under the shield law uh, analogy that I've used. Look, that's been a deep. Rich conversation. It's a vein that we've hardly uh, scratched, and in, in fact, and there's uh, much more that can and will be discussed, particularly if governments, uh, as they seem to be doing around the world, are are moving forward on you know, one of these two issues or both of them uh, that we've described. So I want to thank you. You know, really good conversation. So hard that nobody's come up with uh, with the answer. As I said at the beginning, those answers are very elusive. I've been trying to come up with those answers for um for several years. And I think one could put ideas forward. I think one can see Better ways to go and worse ways to go, but it's hard to see the uh, the right way to go. And uh, and so I appreciate all your contributions to that. Thank you again, Senator Paula Simons, uh, today from Edmonton for joining us. And I,
0: and I should just say very quickly here that I'm not technically a member of the Transport and Communications Committee because technically it doesn't exist at the moment. But I am a once and perhaps future member. We must we mustn't upset anybody. <laughs>
2: Well, I hope you come back on the committee, and I hope the committee uh, thinks about these issues. And uh, I, I do David too. Scott, I want to thank you, and uh, thank you uh, for the work of the logic. As you know, I am a uh, a loyal subscriber. I hope that doesn't bias me in terms of, uh, of any questions <laughs> I asked you, but I tried to be even-handed nonetheless. So thank you for joining us, David. Sean Spear, who does some extraordinarily good work uh, with the Public Policy Forum as our fellow in residence, and looking at a number of issues. Uh, The New North Star 2, his uh, report written with Robert Aslan and Royce Mendez is uh, out for two weeks, very provocative. It has provoked a lot of comments so far, a lot of it good, a little bit of it quite negative, but that's the whole point of the exercise, isn't it, Sean?
3: That's right, and and, what I would say, just in in closing, uh, besides thanking you and the others for, for letting me be part of your conversation is one, what links Our paper in this discussion we've had today is the issue we talked at the outset, Ed. Uh, The Overton window on policy and politics seems to be opening, and I think that's creating a really exciting dynamism that is going to touch all aspects of society, including media.
2: That is a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National News Watch, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforumca. Uh, you can listen to past uh, episodes on any place where you get your podcasts, including National Newswatch and including uh, Public Policy Forum's uh, website and, uh, and everybody else, everywhere else under the earth in this wonderfully fluid and open digital system that we, uh, that we have today. I also wanna take the opportunity on each episode to highlight one or two of our members who are going above and beyond the call of duty during this crisis. We're fortunate the Public Policy Forum to have a broad membership, many partners, ranging from governments across the country to the private sector, post-secondary institutions, trade unions, associations, indigenous groups, and many others. But today, I wanna give two of them a special shout out. First, McKinsey & Company, has been busy helping businesses chart a way forward during the pandemic so they can maintain their innovative mindset and discover new opportunities. McKinsey's launched a new series called Charting the Path to the Next Normal, which is a daily infographic that helps to explain our changing world on public health, digital strategy, acceleration, and business resilience, among others. Charting a way forward is no easy task, and we are up uh, PPF proud of our member McKinsey and Company for providing this leadership to businesses at this time. And also, I want to uh, recognize Rogers Canada, recently brought Canadians stronger together in support of Food Banks Canada and the country's frontline workers combating COVID-19. Rogers gathered a star-studded lineup to raise over $8 million for Food Bank- Banks Canada. Nearly 100 artists, activists, actors, and athletes shared their stories of hope and inspiration in a national salute to frontline workers combating COVID-19. Stronger Together has become the most watched non-sports Canadian broadcast on record with more than 12 million viewers. That's one in three Canadians have seen that, including babies. The concert is now available on a variety of networks and also we are at PPF proud of our member Rogers Canada for donating its funds and supporting Food Banks Canada and helping bring people together in this moment of crisis for so many. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspan and this has been Policy Speaking.